tuning in to another episode of the mTOR You Know podcast. My name is Elise Lawrence, and I am the solid organ transplant PGY2 at the University of Colorado Hospital in Denver, Colorado. Today, I'm excited to discuss data from a recent publication titled Three-Year Outcomes After Conversion from Monthly to Every Two-Month Bilatisup Maintenance Therapy in Kidney Transplant Recipients. Results from a randomized controlled trial by Dr. Eileen Johnson and colleagues. To begin with the refresher on Bilatisept, this medication is a selective T-cell co-stimulation blocker which binds to antigen-presenting cells through CD8086, resulting in CD28-mediated co-stimulation of T-cells. This was first approved for use in Epstein-Barr virus seropositive kidney transplant recipients when used in combination with mycophenolate and prednisone, as well as with basiliximab induction back in June of 2011. The use of bladicept has most commonly been used as an alternative agent for maintenance immunosuppression in order to avoid or reduce the nephrotoxicity seen with calcineurin inhibitors. Outcomes have varied based on different combinations of immunosuppressive agents that have been studied with some initial concerns for increased acute cellular rejection rates. However, further data has shown some long-term outcomes achieving acceptable acute cellular rejection rates that are comparable to tacrolimus-based therapy. Aside from the clinical endpoints, logistical barriers such as monthly infusion center visits and the costs associated with them have also prevented large-scale adoption in kidney transplantation, with still over 90% of new renal transplant recipients being initiated on a CNI-based maintenance immunosuppression. As a result of these logistical issues, early phase two investigations compared every two month to monthly dosing of bladicept and did suggest that it may provide adequate immunosuppression However, it's important to note that this was not powered, which confounded the interpretation of the safety of the, of the alternative dosing strategy. Therefore, the study group that we will be discussing today initially conducted a single-center, randomized controlled parallel group non-inferior, non-inferiority trial, which was designed to test the every two-month versus standard monthly dosing of bladicept, and has now published the analyzation of the three-year follow-up data for these patients. Inclusion criteria for this study consisted of patients who were at least one year post-renal transplant and were required to have completed transient CNI therapy a minimum of six months prior to enrollment and also have a stable graft with an EGFR of greater than 35 and also be on minimum maintenance immunosuppression with bladicept at 5 mg per kg monthly, mycophenolate 1 gram daily, and prednisone 5 mg daily. Additionally, to be considered a low immunological risk, this meant that patients were excluded if they had a calculated panel reactive antibody, or PRA, greater than 50, positive donor-specific antibody, or DSA, or more than one prior rejection episode. For this study, the average patient was a 51-year-old male of non-black race. The most common etiologies of ESRD were hypertension and diabetes. Donor type was pretty evenly split between living and deceased donors for both groups, and other patient characteristics regarding CMV risk, PRAs, induction status, time off CNIs, and time post-transplant were all similar. Overall, 93% of subjects from the initial 12-month study achieved three-year follow-up, with 89% in the standard monthly group and 96% in the every two-month dosing groups. Of patients on a monthly regimen, there were 11 patients who transitioned off bilatisept therapy during the study period, with the most common reason being due to cost for five people. In contrast to the every two-month dosing group, there was only one patient who was transitioned completely off bladicept therapy, which was secondary to recurrence of monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. However, in this two-month group, there were eight patients, which is about 10% of those enrolled in the two-month dosing group, who ended the study on standard monthly dosing, which was most commonly related to the development of DSAs or rejection in five patients, and the remaining three being patient preference. 
Additionally, in the 12-month data, the every two-month bladicept was found to be non-inferior to the monthly standard dosing as the differences in mean EGFR did not exceed the non-inferiority margin of an EGFR of 6. The primary objective of this follow-up data was to assess assess whether the two-month bladicept dosing continued to perform similarly to standard monthly maintenance therapy, which it in fact did, by continuing to show no significant differences in either the time-averaged EGFR or the EGFR at 36 months. The mean difference between the groups was an EGFR of 3.1 for the time-averaged EGFR. This time-averaged EGFR was calculated by dividing months 12 to 36 into three-month intervals and averaging the EGFR. This was done in order to account for uneven sampling during these months. Further, after adjusting for the baseline EGFR, the differences between groups reduced further with a mean EGFR of 71.7 in the every-month dosing group compared to 71.5 in the every-two-month group. These results were also confirmed by two sensitivity analysis, one that excluded patients with either death or graft loss, and another sensitivity analysis that input EGFR as zeros subsequent to patients experiencing death or graft loss. Regarding secondary outcomes, overall there was no statistically significant differences in time to death or graft loss, as well as freedom from rejection or freedom from donor-specific antibodies. In the initial 12-month study, there were no graft losses in either group, and only the standard monthly group had two patient deaths during that time. During months 12 through 36, there were three additional deaths and one graft loss in the standard monthly dosing group compared to the two deaths and two more graft losses in the every two-month groups. All deaths had a functioning graft, and all graft losses in both groups were associated with documented non-adherence. For the standard monthly dosing group, one patient developed DSAs in acute rejection, whereas in the do- uh, two-month dosing group, three patients developed DSAs, with two being associated with acute rejection, which were all also associated with documented non-adherence. Though not statistically significant, there was a trend toward higher rejection rates in the every two-month dosing cohort. And when combined with the first year of follow-up data, the difference in cumulative survival from acute rejection nearly reaches statistical significance at 98. 98.7% in the monthly dosing group versus 92.4% in the every two-month dosing group. So this may suggest that non-adherence may be less tolerated in the every two-month dosing regimen. However, the authors do note that the majority of this was detected during the first year of follow-up and that the study was underpowered to detect differences in immune events. Overall, the authors concluded that based on the continued non-inferiority of renal function and survival at 36 months compared to standard monthly infusions, the every two-month latisept regimen is a potentially viable maintenance immunosuppressive strategy in low immunologic risk kidney transplant recipients, with 99% of living subjects with a functioning graft in the every two-month dosing group compared to just 86% in the monthly group remaining on therapy, which may facilitate increased clinical utilization of co-stimulation blockade-based immunosuppression by reducing these logistical concerns. This additional follow-up, although still underpowered to detect subtle differences in immune event rates, provides context to further evaluate the clinical utility of every two-month dosing to minimize immunosuppressive burden, enhance convenience, and also reduce cost while still being able to maintain positive outcomes. Further, large multi-center trials will still be needed to, under, to identify underlying differences and to precisely estimate hazard ratios. Now switching topics to a recent clinical pearl that I reviewed with our hospital pharmacy group, which was a nice refresher for our group on the nuances of, a, of using non-Bactrim agents for toxoprophylaxis after solid organ transplant, as this is not something that comes up very regularly. For some background, most individuals can utilize Bactrim um, for PJP prophylaxis. However, because of this, we don't always have to worry about toxoplasmosis coverage as Bactrim also covers this. However, the next best alternative when Bactrim cannot be used and toxo coverage is needed comes with some trade-offs. 
The important thing to first consider is who needs prophylaxis for Toxo. So the big group here is going to be our heart transplant recipients, as the cysts of Toxo are commonly found in muscle tissue, giving heart transplants recipients the greatest risk here. Therefore, it is recommended that both moderate and high risk, based on serostatus, should receive prophylaxis, as, as, as it has been seen that the highest risk group with donor positive, recipient negative, are thought to have a 57 to 75% risk of early post-transplant infection without prophylaxis. This is in comparison to all other solid organ transplant recipients, which it is generally considered a much lower risk compared to heart transplant. And overall, it is recommended that you could consider for our high-risk patients that are donor positive, recipient negative, when they are not a heart transplant recipient. And that being said, if they are a recipient positive, it is not recommended to receive prophylaxis as the risk is considered to be very low. So while we know that Bactrim is our first-line agent for prophylaxis here, in the event that patients cannot utilize Bactrim, the next two agents that can be considered is a combination of Dapsone plus pyrimethamine plus leucovorin or atovaquone. And again, these are going to come up with some trade-offs. So first and foremost, Dapsone, um, we have seen that breakthrough infections have occurred with Dapsone monotherapy, which is why we have this combination with pyrimethamine and also leucovorin as well in order to mitigate the risk for bone marrow toxicities. While this is considered a more efficacious um, combination compared to just using atovaquone alone, Overall, this is really hard for patients to tolerate, especially in the long term, when we already are at such high risk for having pancytopenia. Therefore, it is seen that atovaquone can be thought to be used, and though, while generally thought to be less effective compared to this other regimen, um, it can be an agent of choice when Bactrim cannot be used. It is important to note that the length of prophylaxis is really going to be center-specific. Um, while in high-risk patients, it's often at least one year for heart transplant, but this could be extended based on the degree of immunosuppression. Um, whereas the ASTID guidelines do recommend lifelong prophylaxis, although this is considered a weak recommendation with low-quality evidence. Um, and if this continued, they do recommend ongoing clinical monitoring with PCR testing. Um, in comparison to our um, non-heart transplant recipients that are considered high-risk with our donor-positive and recipient negative. And though, although they are considered high-risk, again, this risk, just as a reminder, is thought to be much less than those in heart transplant recipients. And though most recommend at least one-year prophylaxis in these patients, the optimal duration of prophylaxis has not been well studied, and most centers will mirror the timeline of PJP prophylaxis. That is all I have on our Toxo refresher for Bactrim intolerant patients. I hope you enjoyed another episode of the mTOR You Know podcast. Thanks for listening.